0: Support for this podcast comes from CLR Clear. Fight back against annoying household messes with CLR Clear. CLR Clear is tough on dirt and grime all around your home, and we're not just talking about calcium, lime, and rust. They have an entire lineup of cleaning products for your kitchen, bathroom, garage, and more. Visit clrbrands.com to learn more. CLR Clear. Fight the clean fight. Eileen Fisher designs simple clothes to make your life easier timeless pieces and high quality materials that are responsibly sourced for less impact on the environment and more positive impact in the world. Visit eileenfisher.com and use offer code girlfriend to receive $25 off your $100 purchase. That's eileenfisher.com offer code girlfriend for $25 off.
1: Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso, and I'm
0: Anne Friedman. Okay, what are we actually doing on this podcast today? We spoke with an academic, a historian who I think it's fair to say we've both been reading and very interested in for a long time. Her name is Stephanie Kuntz. We interviewed her because as we were researching for our book about friendship and about like big important lifelong friendships, we were quickly confronted with the fact that there are precious few experts looking at the topic. I mean, we're obviously quoting it in the book, but it's so interesting. We really wanted to share it in full with all of you.
1: I'm really excited to hear more about what Stephanie Coons has to say about marriage and friendship.
0: Admin note, we are going on tour. I hope you already knew this, but maybe this is news to you. And if it is, I'm really excited to tell you that tickets are on sale now in late September and early October. We're going to Toronto, Detroit, Denver, Austin and Houston. There are tickets left in all of those cities. And we are going to be having a great time live shooting the shit on stage, chatting with some amazing special guests. We always have a couple of visual elements that are impossible to do over the air on the podcast that are like very special to the live experience. So come see us. Callyourgirlfriend.com slash tour. And if you have a friend in one of those cities, give them the heads up. We want to meet all of your besties too.
1: Callyourgirlfriend.com slash tour. Hi, Ann Friedman hello it's been a long time since we've actually recorded this podcast how's it going do we want to
0: talk about our our blissful like month of basically not working
1: oh my gosh i like i'm still shook like i in the best way possible i feel like it is now going to be my personal corporate
0: policy that we take a full month off every year um, all employees of my corporation, which is me, um, get to choose what month they want off for the year, and then just take a take a full break. Because let me tell you, it feels different when you have a break of that length from your normal
1: work. Uh, European people would concur with you. <laughs> I
0: mean, I know. I'm just like I, I know that this is not like a like revelatory information to many people on this planet that have like humane labor policies. But wow.
1: It's the best. I feel renewed, refreshed, restored. My edges are back. My crops are thriving like everything. (laughs) It's like everything is cool again. I am so it's a huge privilege in America to be able to, to take some time off. But we're also people who work for ourselves. So, you know, if we don't give ourselves a break, nobody else will
0: exactly and i do i fully recognize the luxury i mean it doesn't privilege doesn't even like go far enough in my mind like the the pure luxury that it was to have a concerted break and you know what i'm so happy to be back i could not be
1: happier to be talking Same. to you for this I'm podcast super today. happy to be back if you work in an office and you're listening to this podcast take all your fucking vacation days like you don't get to keep those just take oh. them But anyway, back to being back. Being back is, like, good, you know? It's like my brain is uh, not on fire anymore. We turned in the first draft of our book. We are, you know, like, thriving. I think that's the word. I'm into it
0: we are doing our best on a little bit more sleep and re- relaxation than normal is how I would describe <laughs> it. <laughs> wow! I mean, I, Tem- I just took temporary. a 3
1: PM freelancer shower. So I'm like, some things have not changed, but <laughs> I mean, you know, like being back in the frying pan is no joke. It's no joke. I'm like reorganizing all my house also because just so many things have been driving me crazy and that's its own full-time job. So I like being able to take a break from just like, throwing things away and donating things to doing this what is your method for my method for what for house cleaning do you have like uh do you have like a
0: specific like set of criteria you're using to decide what stays and what goes are you like
1: condoing are you so man condo is not like my jam but I do agree that like if you don't feel fondly about something it should probably like not be in your house I think that what was really going on for me is that I moved to this country with like a backpack and a suitcase and now i own too many things and owning things really stresses me out but it's also like the reality of like getting older or whatever but for me it just really represents a lack of mobility like if i just i'm like weighed down by things and so my mission has been twofold it's like to get rid of as much stuff as i can get rid of but also just like streamline my house so that every single thing has a place like on some hgtv shit But also like I want that every time I like walk through the door because we travel so much. This is the only place in the world I want to be. And so that's what I'm building for myself.
0: Oh, the only place in the world you want to be standard is so good. I feel like my home is that even though it is full of a lot of things that don't have places or things that probably don't spark joy. Like I still I still feel it meets that threshold,
1: you know, but you're like you're like a very good like maximalist you have all the things i'm always like having to buy things because i don't own it you're the person that's like yeah here's my gorilla glue here's my like Hair crimper. Here's my you know, like you always have the thing. And so I I was involved in a conversation about scissors recently where a
0: friend who lives in a very small studio apartment was appalled to learn I own like six different pairs of scissors if you count my rotary cutter.
1: <laughs> I don't even know what a rotary cutter is. So that's oh, what's looking up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this is what I'm talking about. But you always have the thing. Whereas like I'm always buying the thing and then I hate myself for buying the thing. And so I'm just trying to make peace with what I have. But the thing that's been like really fun about reorganizing also is that I haven't had to buy like anything for storage because I own, like I've just been repurposing things that I own. Like that makes me feel really happy. It's also like forced me a lot to just like confront my own consumerism. When I was in boarding school, we always made fun of the Americans at boarding school because they would buy everything in bulk. You know, it was always like the girl <laughs> down the hall would have like, because like Costco, like the, the Costco Co- roots the, run the deep Costco yeah. mentality, right? It's like, it's like, damn, you're coming all the way to West Africa with like tampons for five years. What? You know, but like you were always <laughs> running into that girl's bathroom because she had everything. But so when I've been like decluttering my house, I'm looking at it and I'm like, wow, I have fully turned into that girl from down the hall. That in high school, I like couldn't believe like people live that way. And now I'm like, why do I have like seven different like toothbrushes in case people spend the night? You know what I mean? Like what? Like, <laughs> that is such a weird... And I had so much toothpaste, so many, like... Because you get them free at the dentist, isn't that the answer? No, <laughs> yeah, I, listen, first of all, I like buying fun toothbrushes, but also I real, I guess, like, dental care is, like, my fear in the apocalypse. But, so, <laughs> I've just been, like, stockpiling things. That is very on-brand. <laughs> I know, but, you know, it's felt really good to go to, like, um. there's a sober living home around the corner from me, and they take donations. And so, I've just been really happy that all of my, like, brand new, unused, like, on trend dental care socks and everything has a home that has felt like really good. But I feel really gross as a human being about like at how much stuff I buy. And so, okay. I had, I, just like, had a moment where I thought this. you said dental care socks, <laughs> <laughs> my dental care <laughs> and, I was like, and my socks. I was
0: like, are you buffing your teeth with a pair of socks? No, what's going it turns
1: on? out I'm also like collecting socks and you know, I don't wear socks because like, I don't believe in it, but it turns out I have like a bazillion pairs of them. So here we go. Wow. All of this to say also that it's like, it's good every once in a while to touch every single item that you own, you know, like outside and especially like doing it outside of a move because like moving is so stressful. I'm on a serious like not allowed to buy things that I own right now and it feels good. Congratulations. Thanks. I feel like that's a big like that is big. I know. Do you need a Do you need some toothpaste? Oh my gosh. You're not shipping me toothpaste. And <laughs> if I send you the remaining toothpaste that I have, you're not going to buy a toothpaste for the rest of the year, maybe even a year and a half.
0: Okay. Is it like Tom's of Maine? I don't do any natural okay, toothpaste. I don't I do, do Tom's do like... of
1: Maine, um, but I do have like a Marvis stash and the Marvis mint. I highly recommend. I also have like all this weird Portuguese toothpaste. Oh my God. I'm hanging up. And then the French toothpaste I grew up on. See, I'm telling you, I have a problem. So, you know, I'll send you stuff. Don't so, worry. Send me an international toothpaste sampler. Maybe <laughs> Listen, I love um, whenever I travel. That's one thing that I always get. Uh, well i suppose we should talk about today's episode no we should keep talking about toothpaste obviously <laughs> what if that is just the, the episode
0: is domestic minutiae and that is it like literally that is the whole the entirety of this episode is me talking about how i wanted to organize my bathroom while i was off and um, also like i need a new fabric storage solution and also ooh,
1: like yeah listen i have something for you from the container store let's talk oh my god okay let's talk <laughs> Okay, what are we actually doing on this podcast today?
0: Okay, well, the setup for the interview today is that we spoke with an academic, a historian who I think it's fair to say we've both been reading and very interested in for a long time. Her name is Stephanie Kuntz. I think the first book of hers I read was this book about American history called The Way We Never Were, American Families and the Nostalgia Trap, which I can't remember. It might've been some like college era reading for me, but it was definitely um, one of our
1: early like, uh, like friend conversations was like, Oh, you also read Stephanie (laughs) Koontz. Oh my God. She's like a nerdy. She's like nerdy
0: historian who's occasionally found in the pages of like you know, the New York Times op-ed section. But we, we interviewed her because as we were researching for our book about friendship and about like big, important, lifelong friendships, we were quickly confronted with the fact that there are precious few experts looking at the topic. There are a few books that are, you know, specifically about the history of friendship, but they kind of tended more toward the academic, and they didn't meet our exact needs. And we were like, what if we call this historian we really like who's been studying a lot of other things about the way we structure our supportive, intimate relationships in American society. And I would say also probably a lot of her work applies to Western Europe as well and ask her some questions about where friendship fits into that picture. So that was like the, the genesis of this interview. And then it was so interesting. Um, I mean, we're obviously quoting it in the book, but it's so interesting. We really wanted to share it in full with all of you.
1: I'm really excited to listen to this interview that you did. And also, you know, like just think about a lot about so much of society is organized around marriage for like some reasons very good, some reasons like not so great. But, you know, it's just really interesting to think about like what the world looks like if you just let people choose their people who are important to them and how like can we structure society like kind of in a different way. So I'm really excited to hear more about what Stephanie Coons has to say about marriage and
2: friendship.
0: Stephanie, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
2: Oh, it's fun to be here. Thanks.
0: We really wanted to speak to you because you're a historian who takes a long view about how family life has changed, often a feminist view of how family life has changed over the years. And I'm wondering if the evolution of how we view family in our society has affected also how we view friendship and in particular friendship between women.
2: Well, yes, (laughs) it's affected it tremendously (laughs) over an immensely long period of time. I was just recently doing some research again into kinship in foraging societies and the closest that we can get to understanding what it was like 50,000 years ago, and one of the things that has increasingly, I think, researchers are beginning to realize is that kinship wasn't necessarily the basis of human cooperation so much as it was the outcome of human cooperation, that people lived and worked together together and then considered themselves kin because they shared food or lived together or cooperated. And then, of course, marriage added to that because marriage was a way of turning strangers into kin— And one of the things in the earliest history, before you get the development of class society and a lot of uh, inequities, marriage is a way of extending cooperation and reciprocity. So it's not just about the relationship between the individuals or even the immediate in-laws. You've got all of these complicated obligations that are owed to not only your in-laws, but the kin of your in-laws, and uh, it w- it's, it functioned just to make sure that you were connected to other people. And in Native American societies, for example, and many other societies that were pre-state societies, you would have a tradition of also literally fictive kin, you know, um, sharing blood to say that to solidify a friendship. So that goes back a long ways, and it's a complicated and ever-changing relationship. And we've seen changes in it just in the last 10 or 15 years, but the changes over the last 200 or 300 years are are quite dramatic.
0: Yeah, and I'm wondering if you can, when you say you know, forager societies, like what years are you talking about and where are you talking about specifically?
2: All, all over the the country, all over the world. Human beings lived in band-level societies that did not produce settled agriculture for many millennia, ma- many more years, and they lived in uh, industrial societies or even agricultural societies. What we know about those societies is that they really depended upon finding ways to establish peaceful relations and cooperative relations with people they encountered, the people that they might share a fish run with. So I'm talking about all, all over the world. I'm not saying they all lived in utopian harmony, but researchers <laughs> but researchers have found that the, the best way when you're a foraging society and don't store surpluses that you can hoard and hide from other people, the best way to survive is to share what you get on any given day. Then, literally, what goes round comes round, and I think that you have to trace friendships and marriage and in-laws all back to that sort of cooperative thing. Reciprocity was the most important thing, and refusing to share, refusing to reciprocate, was the most uh, important sin in such societies.
0: And and that wasn't based on necessarily on biological kin relationships is that what you were saying
2: no the um, a recent set of researchers looked at the uh, dna going way back and they've discovered that only about 40% of a band level was probably related originally by by kinship uh, the rest uh, were friends or collaborators or in-laws, but but even, even that, we've overemphasized how important the family was in establishing cooperation and maybe underestimated how important <laughs> cooperation was in establishing the family.
0: Oh my gosh, I love that. And okay, so what happens, you mentioned that this is sort of like a pre-class society. What happens as humans start to get more organized and maybe settle down or, or, you know, get into agriculture, like that sort of thing. Like, how, how does this start to shift?
2: Well, as you get the development of surpluses, it's kind of a crisis for foraging societies, you know, because the idea was that you redistribute. William Penn wrote of the Native Americans that he met in Pennsylvania, that ca- calling the leaders quite wrongly kings, the kings distribute and to themselves last. And he pa- captured a very important part Of foraging level societies that you have to give to others because that's how you get back well when you start to produce surpluses the question is how if if one group has more surpluses than the other do they give them away do they uh, start keeping them for their own group and if they do how do they justify that and you begin to get gradually these class uh, uh, or at least rank differences and those kind of things begin to change the idea that, that you don't share with everybody. Well, what's what's the best justification you can come up with for not sharing with other? Everybody from the earliest state societies right up to today's hard-charging, selfish businessmen who screw everybody over that they can. Oh, well, I had to provide for my family. I have to save it for my family.
0: <laughs> right, yeah, the kind of like, uh, just that is a justification for selfishness.
2: Yes. Yes. Yeah. In an odd um, way. You can be very altruistic with your own family, but uh, it also becomes a justification for uh, saying no to other families.
0: Um, and, and where did uh, important non-family relationships or like non, you know, Like blood kin relationships fit in at that point?
2: Well, it all depends uh, on where we're talking about, and I don't think we've got three hours to go into all of them. (laughs) But in pre state societies, you get a lot of ways of of organizing. Um, One is um, influential people attract followers by giving to them, Um, but then they get loyalty in return, and in a sense, more labor. You know, you give somebody a certain amount, and if they or you services in return, over time, you're actually going to get more. uh, And it's going to increase the wealth disparities.
0: So less friends, more followers kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, but friendship was also very important because friendship was a way of saying we're going to have this kind of reciprocal uh, agreement. And again, I do not want to romanticize it in any way but it's only in fairly recent times that we've been able to be more casual about friendship, to make it a pick and choose thing. I'd like you, Anne, and I'm going to be a friend with you, but I'm not going to be a friend with this person next door because I don't need them. So, mm. but you know, in the older societies, you just needed people, and so there was a lot of instrumental, uh, practical. A consideration there. But I think sometimes we may bend the stick a little too far when we say that, oh, well, it must only be emotional. If there aren't instrumental and practical needs for a relationship, it's hard to to keep up the energy to keep it going.
1: Every generation has its challenges. Some would say that's the reason for its progress. It might start with a small act of kindness or a big idea that changes everything. It can come from the tiniest voice or the voice of a generation. Or it could come from me, Aminatu. I am one of six change-making women featured in Eileen Fisher's Good Goes On campaign this spring. The campaign highlights women empowering women, the importance of sustainability, and the power of good design. Eileen started in 1984 with the idea that simple clothes can make life easier. And after spending a day on set wearing a super comfortable ultra chic jumpsuit, I think she's really on to something. As a company, Eileen Fisher believes doing well by doing good, and that's reflected in the way their clothes are made. Timeless styles and quality materials that are responsibly sourced for less impact on the environment and a more positive impact on the world. It was a real honor to be featured in this campaign and meet the other women making a difference in their community. I've been a longtime Eileen Fisher fan, so this was a dream come true for me. You can visit EileenFisher.com and use the offer code GIRLFRIEND to receive $25 off of your $100 purchase. That's EileenFisher.com. Offer code GIRLFRIEND for $25 off.
0: maybe if you asked people to to write down like are friends important to me yes or no they would all say yes but like a lot of the societal messages we receive are that it's kind of like fun and optional like that need component you describe isn't always recognized by the way at least i think american society is organized today and i'm curious what you know how how you think we got to that point in terms of I mean, maybe I'm jumping way ahead.
2: But let's jump way ahead. Let's let's leave the Paleolithic and Neolithic and jump
0: up to it. It's
2: fascinating though. Yeah. <laughs> jump up to the 17th or 18th centuries.
0: Great. Let's go to the 17th century.
2: <laughs> this this was the period where you were just beginning to get the development of wage labor uh, in Western Europe. Um, but it coexisted with older ways of organizing things, remnants of old tribal societies, certainly a lot of the old feudal and then the absolutist monarchies. And friendships are still very important, but people cultivate them in terms of what they're going to get back from it. But On the other hand, a lot of your emotion goes into those friendships. If you go back to a 12th century poem, an anonymous poem called The Wanderer, where the guy has lost the Lord who uh, kept him, the man mourns with total unselfconsciousness about how he misses the gold giver at whose knee he used to sit. So the combination of I need you, I get things from you, but I also have a strong emotional connection to you was particularly important. Uh, not only in the patron and follower relations, but in relationships between peers. And it stood out above, in many cases, the marriage relationship. Because up until about the sev- 17th century, marriages were remained away of making business alliances, of organizing your family labor force, of expanding your kin networks in a society that didn't have banks. (laughs) It was a way of raising capital. Of course, for the upper class, it was a way of uh, claiming, finding higher status, of organizing military alliances and peace treaties even. You know, love was nice if it came afterwards, but it was not considered a good reason for marriage. And so friendships were uh, very different and uh, perhaps more emotionally central to people. Even when we begin to get the love match and they, people begin to say in about the 17th to 18th century really uh, flourished by the end of the 18th century, people, as the American founders put it, had a right to the pursuit of happiness. So love ceased to be something that was just like you know, um, you hoped that it would come from marriage, but it became a good reason for marriage. On the other hand, at the very same time, the notion of marriage really changed. And this is the same time period and the same forces that created the love match created a notion of males and females that today we would consider totally incompatible with love. The idea that they are totally different people. So, with the development of this new idea that marriage is a union of opposites, of two people who love each other precisely because they are so different that you can only get access not only to the resources but the emotions as well as the services of the other um, because you don't have them yourself. Uh, it's a it's a powerful impetus to get married, <laughs> but it's not a very uh, good basis for friendship. And so what we see in the 19th century is this a really interesting paradox that as we, the more that they romanticized marriage, the more that men and women saw each other as strangers and women write in their diaries about, you know, what will it be like to be married to what they called the grosser sex. There was, um, people would have, women would have a marriage trauma. They would get engaged as soon as they could because they knew they get good, good needed to get married. But they would actually postpone the marriage as long as they could because it was so Uh, frightening to, to get together with this stranger. And men, too, recorded about how much they loved and idealized these delicate little creatures, but they didn't know what to talk about with them. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So this led to this intense romanticization of the other, But also, it opened the way for a real flowering of male-male and female-female friendships because those were the people that you had everything in common with. And again, we're talking about the white middle class here mostly, but we also see uh, elements of this modified by the constraints of working class and uh, African-American life and the necessity to have these other kind of bonds. But most intensely in the white middle class, you had this idea that Women have all this in common, men have all this in common, and because marriage was not yet sexualized, women were seen as asexual, it was okay to have these intensely passionate relationships, and they carried no taint of illicit sex. So we have diaries of women who write about their deep friendship with Fanny and how they Love each other and they carve their initials in the tree and they write to each other every day. And then one of them will say, I accepted the marriage proposal of Mr. R. last night. And you go, Who, who's that? And he <laughs> hardly ever appears again in the diary until... Uh, she an- announces triumphantly that Fanny came to visit last week and we kicked Mr. R into the parlor and we spent all night giggling and pinching each other. <laughs> and nobody thought anything bad of it. The husbands and-, and sons of these women donated their books to the libraries. You know, if my son had read one of those diaries, I think <laughs> even as enlightened as-, as young people are today, he'd be like, "Ew." <laughs>
0: Well, and how do we separate, like, I think some stories like this, like a Boston marriage, right? Like the idea that two women who are not married to men are maybe going to live together. And we spent all night giggling and pinching each other. I mean, it's hard to, I think, parse that in light of like, well, you know, you didn't really have an option to live openly if you did want to pursue a sexual relationship with another woman and therefore trying to figure out those lines between this is how marriage between women was different then versus like, oh, this is because being gay was so repressed and like not seen as an option. I mean, I don't know. How how do you kind of answer some of those questions when you read these old letters?
2: Well, first of all, we know that that uh, people had same sex desires, uh, you know, uh, throughout history. What was interesting is that it was not yet seen as an identity and so expressions of and also because female sexuality in particular was seen as, you know, so repressed, it didn't carry the taint that if you were seen holding uh, hands and uh, that that it necessarily meant that there would be any kind of real sexual contact. And some of the same freedoms were accorded to men, that men, Uh, record in their diaries uh, falling asleep uh, entwined in each other's arms. And it's not seen as homosexual behavior. Now, we know that that went on. And that was punished very deeply when it was clear that there was a sexual act. But there was a lot of cover, too, for people who could play the role. And of course, what you said about Boston marriages, there were lots of women. In fact, we are and covering ones where the society accepted that there were couples occasionally uh, in smaller communities especially that as long as they played the role of straight up married people who were not continually pawing each other (laughs) the way friends might do uh they kind of accepted that there was a female husband who played you know who did some of the men's work and and a Uh, and a female wife who did some of the other work. So it's a very complicated kind of thing. But it all changes in the early 20th century in ways that are liberating in one sense, that allow people to, because this new emphasis on sexuality, uh, first of all, liberates the relations between men and women. It says, yes, you can... uh, explore your sexual desires and you should have satisfactory sexual relations. But it also says to people, well, if sexuality is a, a really important part of a relationship, then my same-sex uh, desires need to be satisfied. And I should not uh, commit myself to somebody of the so-called opposite sex to whom I am not attracted at all. So it was a contradictory thing, but for the for the mainstream society, the uh, the Freudian psychologists, the mainstream politicians, everybody who was pushing this new ideal of marriage that was sexual but that was contained within a respectable marriage, uh, it had kind of poor consequences for friendship. It did open up new possibilities for males and females to interact again the way they had in the past. But it meant that male-male and intense male-male and intense female-female friendships became immediately suspect. So there was a huge, in the early 20th century, a huge campaign by so-called experts to wipe out the idea of these girlish crushes that had used to be considered perfectly uh, acceptable and kind of fun. And men found themselves... Uh, under suspicion if they walked down the street the way they used to with an arm around each other's shoulders and by the 1950s you had a really powerful strong emphasis in mainstream society sociology psychology about the need to put to to not have friendships that compete with your marriage relationship that that what nuclear family was the most important thing The big play Marty uh, was very popular, and it became a movie. And it the whole emotional message of that is this guy lived with his uh, mother and his maiden aunt, and he took really good care of them. And he had friends from high school that he hung around with, and that was a bad thing. And the happy ending, (laughs) the happy ending to it is we. Ditches them. He moves out on on the mother and uh, aunt, and he moves in with the high school sweetheart, and that's who he really commits to. And this is this is who the message is given to women too all the time that you've got to totally commit to your husband, put aside your girlish friends, or at least you know don't ever let them interfere with your relationship with your husband. And when I interviewed women about their marriages in the fifties and sixties, a lot of them said they had very intense female friendships, but they were tainted in some ways in retrospect, they thought, by the fact that they were all about how to interpret the romantic intentions of a man or what they should do in terms of being single. And once they got married, they didn't have that much in common except when they got together to talk about their married lives. So this was a the real, I think, low point in the history of female friendships. And of course, by that time, male friendships were really off the table. Men were increasingly expected to get any emotional support they needed from their wife, not from other men. So I think that's where we got by the 70s and 80s to the point that I suspect you're dealing with in, in your book and that we've talked about before, that people are trying to rediscover how can you have passionate heterosexual love, if you are a heterosexual, and combine that with passionate friendship bonds. This is something that, that we're just all making our way. How do you develop friendship networks that are really intense, but that are not a threat to whether it's a same-sex or a heterosexual romantic relationship that you're in.
0: Yeah. And I I think it's so interesting also hearing that timeline is, you know, at least for me, my grandparents' generation would be that generation of who were sort of taught to feel that friendship was a threat to like a marriage and family structure. And I don't know, you know, in in the long arc of time, if saying that friendship should be an equally important life relationship is all that radical i mean hearing what you said about like the way humans lived for a very very long time suggests that like actually there's a reason why it feels good to me or feels good to us to feel love and support and get our needs met and meet needs of people beyond like a nuclear family structure like it really makes it makes a lot of sense i mean one thing i wonder is how are these ideas transmitted? I mean, you do talk about like a lot of this stuff originating with a white middle and upper class, but like, I mean, is it all culture? Like how do we get these messages about what friendship is supposed to be and do or what marriage is supposed to be and do?
2: Well, you know, I don't know that we've totally figured out the exact mechanisms of how these things (laughs) (laughs) happen, but as people struggle with dilemmas in their lives, with contradictions, with ambivalence, they look around for answers, and there's always an elite in society, a knowledge elite, if you like, or a mass society elite. I mean, the fact that, you know, the Internet certainly hasn't wiped out. It's created new kinds of um, power relations, but it hasn't wiped out the fact that we don't all have equal access to influence other people. And, mm-hmm. in, and it's those influencers uh, many of whom are supported by and and come out of the class relations and race relations and gender relations, uh, the structures, and they have an interest in supporting those who, even with the best intentions, often reinforce them and put down relationships and emotions and ideas that don't seem to further, you know, whatever the organizational priorities are of an economic and political system at the time. And that's what happened in the early 20th century and very much so in the 1950s. It was particularly powerful then because that was the period when you first got television and there weren't Mm -hmm. any other competing media to go to. So you could really broadcast that to everyone.
0: Right. It's fair to say that marriage and and family are institutions in the sense of all these norms and expectations that maybe you're not agreed upon fully across every demographic line but like generally you know we have a shared understanding of what it means to be married or what it means to be someone's parent or mm-hmm. but when it comes to friendship i think one thing we've been struggling with a lot is it does feel like an institution in some ways i mean it is central to the way many of us are shaped as humans You know, we do have that need relationship with friends for like for much of our even adult lives. And yet it's not really an institution in the same way because there aren't these external supports that validate it. And I'm just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit about what makes, say, like marriage an institution and what makes friendship distinct from that.
2: Well, um, that's an excellent question. I I hope you'll try to answer it. (laughs) But uh, but but look, you know, in in a certain sense, marriage used to be much more highly institutionalized than it is, and you kind of had to stay in it because divorce was very difficult. There's still high cost barriers to exit in a marriage, far more than there are uh, in friendship. And so the question that people have to grapple with in their lives is, do you want to lower the, the barriers to exit in marriage so that it becomes more like friendship, that it's something that you flow? And, and many people have taken that idea that, that maybe we're not set to be with one person as our only romantic uh, life partner for an entire life. Or do we want to maybe raise the cost barriers to exit uh, for friendships, but to do that, you have to personally do that because society has not established them. We don't have any laws making it difficult to, uh, to. as my husband sometimes says jokingly about a friend who's kind of, you know, like if, if you have a friend who's t- ceased to provide support, well, they've passed their pull date. Well, <laughs> there's nothing that, that makes you stay past the pull date in a, in a friendship, and there's a lot that incentivizes you to stay past the pull date in a marriage. So... One of the big challenges is that very fine balance between leaving enough flexibility in one's life so that you can grow and change and leave people who are not providing your needs, but at the same time, how do you cultivate relationships that are mutually, so mutually advantageous that there are cost barriers to exiting them even if you're having a bad day? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a dilemma. One of the reasons that researchers find that in old age, it's your network of friends. People with the largest network of friends are healthier and happier and have better well-being than people who, whose most of their networks are family. But here's the paradox. That's because you, it's easier to get rid of the friends who are not helpful than it is Mm -hmm. to get rid of family who are not helpful. So I think this is a tension that you just have to embrace and struggle with. I mean, not just like, oh, I embrace it, This great. (laughs) But but understand that it will never be solved. That the best way to work out both our romantic and our friendship uh, relationships is to try to work with that dialectic of how do we preserve things, make them go even during periods that are hard and yet also preserve our ability to move on to somebody and something else when someone does consistently disappoint their need for reciprocity.
0: Isn't she the best? Like, Sometimes the most interesting way into a conversation about something is to talk about all the stuff surrounding it, and then you get a clearer picture. It's like, oh, right, if this is the way values and norms have changed around blood bonds and marriage and family life, then like you can really get a clear picture of like why certain pressures have been put on friendship or why it's been devalued. It's like doy, of course.
1: Also like lady historians, so important to me. So important.
0: It's true. I can't say enough good things about the rest of her work, which we will link to. I would say that like she is the perfect example in my mind of a historian who's like, okay, I'm going to not just tell you the facts of what happened, but I'm going to be a little bit of a critic and how I explained to you what was really going on, which I appreciate so much. Okay.
1: (laughs) I guess I'll guess I'll see you on the internet. See you on the internet. You can find us many places on the internet. Call your girlfriend.com Apple podcast, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review, you know, the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Canisha Sneed. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf, where Sophie carter Khan does all of our social. Our associate producer is Jordan Bailey, and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.